0: Our choir just sang to us the most beautiful message that a person can ever hear, the good news of Jesus Christ. The love of God takes perfect shape in the cross of Jesus Christ. For it was there that the Son of God laid down His life for the godless, absorbing all of God's wrath against their sin so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. So that we could be reconciled to God. So that we could walk out of death into everlasting life, into God's presence forever. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of who Jesus is and what He has done for all who trust in Him for salvation. And that's why we're here to worship the Lord today. The moment that we believe in Christ, God adopts us into His family. Uh, God becomes our Father, we become His children, and Scripture says that Christ is unashamed to call us His brothers and sisters. And the Lord says to us, As I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. 1 Timothy 5 tells us how we're to treat one another as members of the household of faith. How we're to treat one another as God's family. This text and the New Testament as a whole teaches us that churches flourish when their members treat one another like family. Churches flourish when their members treat one another like family. And as we saw in the the first part of 1 Timothy 5 last Sunday, the main way in which we do that is to encourage one another. And and this command applies across all age uh, and gender categories in the church. Um, Older men, younger men, older women, younger women, we're to encourage everybody. God wants us to love one another like family, and he wants us to look after those who have no family. And that explains Paul's instructions regarding widows in the first part of chapter 5. Now in the last part of the chapter of 1 Timothy 5, Paul talks about the church loving its leaders namely its pastors and elders. And thus the title of today's sermon, Treat Your Faith Family Well, Part 2, Love Your Leaders. 1 Timothy 5:17 to 25 is our text for today, and that's on page 934 in the Pew Bible. 1 Timothy 5:17 to 25. Please follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read this passage aloud. 1 Timothy 5:17 to 25. but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is God's Word, and the main thrust of this passage is, love your leaders. Treat them well. This is the main point of today's passage. Um, I realize that me standing here as the preaching pastor of Webster Bible Church just can be a little awkward. Uh, it could be my saying, Love me! Pay me well! Be generous! But I'm reminded that this is God's Word, and we just preach right through it. And just as there's points of applications for us as pastors and elders, which I'll touch on, there's also points of application for you as a congregation with respect to the pastors and elders. And and I trust that will become clear as we work through this passage. Uh, This concerns the elders. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Elders that are described here are the overseers in chapter 3, which Paul already addressed. There he gave the qualifications for overseers, you might remember. He's talking about the same group of men. We know that because in Acts 20, when, when Paul addressed the elders of Ephesus, uh, bidding them farewell, the terms elders and overseers and even pastor shepherds are all used interchangeably with respect to these men. So when we talk about elders, we're also talking about pastors. When we're talking about pastors, we're also talking about the overseers. Elders, pastors, overseers all refer to the same group of biblically qualified men govern God's church. I was trying to think through this text, and it helped me to visualize it um, as a tree, uh, with the trunk being the core principle that kind of runs throughout this entire passage. And off this core principle, or the trunk, there's like three major boughs um, that are kind of like the sub-instructions. And even off those boughs, there are uh, smaller instructions that are like the smaller branches protruding from the boughs. So I would say that the trunk or the core principle of the passage is, be good to your elders while remaining godly yourself. Uh, I I think that is uh, the main message that kind of uh, runs through the whole passage. It's the trunk of the tree, if you will. Be good to your elders while remaining godly yourself. And then the three boughs, the the big branches that kind of come off that trunk are, reward them generously, discipline them properly, and appoint them carefully. Then we see off off of these three boughs, there are the the, the more specific instructions that we'll get to as we work through this passage. So let's look at the first major bough. Reward them generously. Be good to your elders while remaining godly yourself. And, and one principal way that you do that is to reward them generously. This is in verses 17 and 18. Paul says in verse 17, writing to Timothy for the sake of the congregation, "...let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching." Again, we know from chapter 3 uh, that elders are the biblically qualified overseers of the church. And and this function is emphasized by that word rule here in verse 17. Honor the elders who rule well. And, and the word rule there is the Greek word proistemi, which means literally to stand first. Uh, so the elders are first in terms of the leadership of the church. Um, that's why the NIV translates the first part of this verse: "The elders who direct the affairs of the church." That's the idea; they're the spiritual managers of God's household. Um, and you know this. If you come here, you know uh, the elders are the ones that that teach and preach uh, Bible doctrine to the people of God. We we pray for the members and ministries of the church and. We trust the Lord to help us chart a vision for the church's future in light of the great commission of making disciples of all nations. Uh, The first part of verse 17, when it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, uh, we've come across that word honor already, haven't we? Uh, back in verse 3, what did Paul say? He said, honor widows who are truly widows. We looked at that last week. And there it's very clear in the context that the word honor there refers to financial support for widows. And, and the word is used in the same way here in the second part of the chapter with respect to pastors or elders. Uh, the Greek word for honor, uh, time, uh uh, often referred to a stipend or allowance that was given to someone for a service. And, and that actually comes through in our English word, honorarium, right? If a, if a minister of the gospel performs a special function, let's say at a wedding or a funeral or a Bible conference or some speaking event, he's given a, uh, an honorarium as an appreciation for that. But we know Paul is referring to financial compensation in verse 17 because of the basis he gives for it in verse 18. He says for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Um, that first quote is from Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4 and that second quote the laborer is worthy of his wages is from the words of Jesus as recorded in Luke 10.7. And by the way, uh, that right there is a good example of one New Testament writer affirming the inspiration of another New Testament writer. Uh, Peter does the same thing in reference to Paul's writings when Peter closes out his second epistle. So just as the Old Testament is the Word of God, so the New Testament is the Word of God as well. In that first quotation, Paul cites an Old Testament law which stipulated that the oxen that threshed out the grain were entitled to eat some of it. Uh, They were not to be muzzled to prevent them from doing so. And Paul's point is pretty clear, or at least it ought to be, that if God required that the animals who labor to provide food for others should not be muzzled but should be able to enjoy some of that grain themselves, How much more would God want faithful pastors or shepherds who spiritually feed the flock of God to be cared for appropriately? And in the second quote, Paul moves from up a level from animals to laborers, to a human worker who is entitled to be paid for his labor. Uh, Paul is suggesting from Scripture that to refuse to support pastors To provide spiritual food for the people of God is is about as heartless as refusing food to a laboring animal or to a hired worker. So if honor refers to financial provision, what does Paul mean by double honor? Uh, Well, uh, one of the most widespread interpretations of this is that if he's saying don't literally pay them double what the average person makes, he's certainly saying pay them generously. Excellent elders, pastors, should be paid generously. He says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. He talked about the ox treading out the grain or threshing out the grain. He talked about the laborer hard at work in the fields. Well, the word labor here is the word kopia'o, which means strenuous labor. It talks about working even to the point of exhaustion. It's wearing yourself out in the study of the Scriptures and in the ministry to God's people. Paul says here, let them be considered worthy of double honor. In other words, don't just pay the pastor or some other uh, Christian elder, whatever have you, unthinkingly, unfeelingly. He says, consider their worth. Weigh the value of their ministry of preaching and teaching the Word of God to the people of God. And then compensate them accordingly. Now, let me say here that a faithful elder or pastor will not ever take advantage of the church's generosity. And here's why. Because chapter 3 comes before chapter 5. And in chapter 3, when he lists the qualifications of an elder, one of them is he must not be a lover of what? he must not be a lover of money. So so greed should not be a concern. If a man is qualified for the office of pastor, elder, overseer, he is to be trusted to use the resources given him for the glory of God, for the care of his family, for the spread of the gospel, for the care of God's kingdom, for the building up of the church. One other possible interpretation of double honor that I came across that I think is certainly worth mentioning is that it refers to remuneration and respect. In other words, not saying like pay them double so much as pay them, you know, let them earn a living from the gospel, Uh, let it be a tangible financial expression um, of your support, but also to be coupled with the respect that is to be given to pastors elders overseers that are that is emphasized throughout the new testament for instance hebrews 13:17 says obey those who rule over you there's that word rule and be submissive why because they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you hebrews 13:17 So the idea here is, is be good to your elders. Contribute to the joy of their leadership. Reward them generously in terms of how you pay them, in terms of how you regard them and respect them, because that, in a positive sense, will be profitable for you. Uh, It'll do you good in return, especially on the day when we meet Christ. But there is a second aspect to this. That is, if we're to treat our elders properly, they must not only um, be rewarded generously, but they must be disciplined properly. Discipline discipline them properly is that second bough of the tree, if you will, that that major branch that appears in verses 19 to 21. It's the second bough of the tree that pertains to the church's treatment of its elders. Look at verses 19 and 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence or basis of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So protruding from this bow of the proper discipline of elders are two equally important branches of instructions. The first one is, Protect elders from from unsubstantiated accusations. And the second one that corresponds to it is, rebuke elders who persist in sin. You see that? If we're going to discipline elders properly, we must protect them from unsubstantiated accusations. Well, we might say empty or false accusations, unprovable accusations, but then with substantiated allegations, they must be rebuked in the presence of all. So there's, there's an important balance there. Let's look at that first one, protect elders from unsubstantiated accusations. The fact is there are some people that are always looking to take pot shots at leaders. Uh, that's true in almost every sphere of life, and sadly, it's no different in the church. And people that do this um, are inclined to do this for any number of reasons. In the church, it it could be because they simply despise authority. The Bible talks about people who despise authority. It could be that they disagree with them on some element of teaching and it just gnaws at them so they look to find fault with them in other areas. Or it could be that they despise the Lord's blessing on that person's life. There can be many reasons for it, but what many false accusers fail to see is that they are pawns of Satan. Satan is the master accuser, and we are simply um, entering into his web of manipulation and control when we are given to false accusations of others. But it should come to us as no surprise when this happens to godly leaders because we know Paul faced this constantly, throughout the New Testament and the churches he ministered to. There were other biblical characters who were falsely accused, such as Joseph, Moses, David, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, and none more than our Lord Jesus himself. These all suffered from false accusations to varying degrees. One Puritan writer, John Trapp, put it this way, "'Truth always has a scratched face.'" Truth always has a scratched face, and sometimes far worse. False accusations, even in the church, are a real danger. And so Paul tells Timothy, as the pastor at Ephesus, leading the people of God in that area of the world, in that particular church, how to deal with allegations pertaining to elders. Verse 19, the first part of that verse, look at it again. It literally says against an elder, an accusation received not. Against an elder, an accusation received not. And I believe that the original word order suggests who it is exactly that is being accused. It is a shepherd of God's flock. And it also emphasizes that an unsubstantiated allegation is not to be received. Um, The ESV uses the word admitted. Do not admit an accusation. Do not allow it to run its course. That word for receive or admit is is an intensified form of the Greek word for to receive. And it means to actually welcome the thought of. To entertain the thought of. To mull it over in your mind and maybe even enjoy mulling it over in your mind out of curiosity or whatever the case may be. Paul says, don't do that. Paul says, instead, you are to ignore it. You are to turn a deaf ear to it. You are to refuse to listen to it, except on the basis of what? Two or three witnesses. Right? So he's talking here about unsubstantiated accusations, not legitimate ones. This stipulation was required in the law of Moses, and it was actually reiterated by Jesus. In the context of church discipline, multiple witnesses are required to confirm allegations. And this shows that elders are to be held accountable for legitimate accusations, but they are to be protected from unsubstantiated allegations or accusations. I found in my own 30 plus years of pastoral ministry that false accusations, they can surface at any given time, but they tend to surface most in seasons of church discipline or in tough decisions. Church discipline or just tough decisions is when these false accusations tend to surface. Um, When my office was downstairs in uh, the basement of the church for um, 10 or 11 years, my first 10 or 11 years here, I had a, a bulletin board right next to my desk. And I had a sticky note uh, on the bulletin board reinforced with text that had an excerpt from a hymn that was written in the 19th century called Courage, Brother, Do Not Stumble. Courage, brother, do not stumble. And it was written by the 19th century Scottish minister Norman MacLeod. And here's the part of the hymn I had posted on the wall Some will hate thee, some will love thee, some will flatter, some will slight. Cease from man and look above thee. Trust in God, trust in God, trust in God, and do the right. That's what we're to do, despite what people say is, is we must have a clear conscience before God and others. Doesn't mean by any stretch that pastors, elders, anyone else will always make the right decisions, but what they do, they do before the Lord with a clear conscience before God and others. And that's what we're to do, despite what people say. But this command is given to those who hear false accusations, those who hear unsubstantiated allegations against spiritual leaders in the church. And they're told to defend the integrity of the pastoral leadership when there's no grounds to these allegations. There's no evidence that this has taken place. Now I'm going to cite one example to show that Our church is not above this. This is something just as Timothy faced at Ephesus, we face here in Webster. And this isn't to bring back an ugly thing. It's just to give you an example. About eight years ago, almost eight years ago, when we made the decision to shut down Webster Christian School, uh, a decision that was one of the toughest ones that we made as a church, and it was one that was confirmed with a congregational vote. Uh, Everybody was saddened by that decision, Um, some people strongly disagreed with it. And by the way, that is totally fine. It is perfectly okay to disagree with the decision. But as I look back on it, I am reminded at how false accusations were just surfacing everywhere uh, from people that were embittered about this issue. And there was one time when a meeting was called, not by uh, the members of our congregation or the church, but by parents that were outside our church. And the the meeting took place here in this very room. And some of you might have been here, but the false accusations that were coming out were utterly ridiculous. And uh, I was sitting right out there, and uh, I just sat, and uh, the Lord just kind of assured me in my heart that I didn't need to defend myself. Psalm 7.10, I reminded the words, or remember the words of David, my shield is of God who saves the upright in heart. By that I don't mean that, you know, I was perfect through the process, the elders were, the school committee and stuff like that, but, but we did what we did with a clear conscience, and there were a lot of false accusations coming up around that time. And I just sat there, And but as the false accusations surfaced and one person was standing up, saying some things, even using like the word demonic and everything like that regarding our leadership and stuff like that. Uh, There was a Christian brother who's here today that I, I won't mention by name, but at one point he stood up behind me and he said to the person, he said, watch what you say, that's my pastor you're talking about. And I believe he was totally appropriate in saying that because this text says if there's an unsubstantiated accusation, we have an obligation to protect the integrity of the leaders of the church. And we've had similar things come up during church discipline issues where the elders have really worked with someone, trying to bring them to repentance, and they refuse to listen, and it would not be right to share every detail that we know with the entire church. We give adequate information so that they know the church knows what we're dealing with, but we're not going to give a tit-for-tat. And sometimes... There's accusations that are completely groundless and it's a test of the congregation's trust in the Lord to work through his leadership specifically when there are no uh, there's no evidence to these empty accusations or allegations that are being made because they will surface during times especially of church discipline and when tough decisions have to be made. And I want to Say before God and before you how thankful I am for a congregation that remains true to God and to His Word by refusing to give ear to false accusations. And that's essential if leaders are to be treated lovingly and if they're to be disciplined properly. Because there is a time when elders do need to be rebuked, when pastors need to be rebuked because of sin. And need to be rebuked publicly. And that's branch, if you will, that principle is set forth in verse 20. Alright, so let's keep in mind what's going on here. This, this is the vow of disciplining elders properly. And, and a couple of smaller branches protruding from that is protect them from unsubstantiated accusations. But the other branches rebuke them publicly when they persist in sin. And that shows that elders are to be protected in certain cases, but they're also to be rebuked when accusations are legitimate. Here it says that any elder who persists in sin and and so violates the qualifications of an overseer that have already been listed in chapter 3 is to be rebuked in the presence of all. And there's no qualification given for all there. So since he's talking about the context of the local church, I believe this means that one is to be rebuked not only in in the presence of the other elders, but in the presence of all the church members as well, the household of faith. That word rebuke literally means to expose, to prove wrong, to show to be guilty, to convince with compelling evidence. So we're talking about legitimate allegations that have evidence backing it up. And then that needs to be dealt with publicly because there's a high price tag that comes with leading the Lord's people. John MacArthur wrote in his commentary, a sinning elder has nowhere to hide. And that's a strong statement, but it ought to be true. A sinning elder has nowhere to hide. And that's never easy to do to rebuke someone publicly, but it's the right thing to do. And it's for this very reason that Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.21. Listen to his language here. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. In other words... When someone is found to be guilty of a a pattern of sin, they are legitimate accusations, and he has violated the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3. Paul tells Timothy, do not show preferential treatment. They may be a beloved friend of yours. They probably are. They might be extremely close to you. You might have benefited tremendously from their ministry, but Timothy, do not show partial treatment in that case because God the Father is watching. The Lord Jesus Christ is watching. All the elect angels are watching, so you'd better fear them more than you fear people's reactions for the public rebuke that must be done. That's the point here, because there is a pressure not to do it. It's never easy to do. It's never um, fun to do. (laughs) It is never enjoyable in the least sense, but it is the right thing to do. The purpose of public rebuke, Paul says, is so that the rest may stand in fear. I believe he's speaking there certainly about the rest of the elders. They don't want to go through that. But also the rest of the congregation because church discipline applies to all. Proverbs 19.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Wisdom. So in matters like this one, that's the purpose of public rebuke. uh, uh, People wise up. Elders and congregation alike, they're reminded, wow, God takes sin seriously and we better as well. And I think a very common response from uh, committed elders and members are when they see someone go through that is, I-, I need to do a spiritual check on my own heart here. What sins am I tolerating in my life? What if it were found out that I was doing such and such or whatever? And so we get serious about purifying ourselves and pursuing holiness in the fear of God, as Second Corinthians seven one says. Now elders who have been rebuked and are repentant should be immediately forgiven and accepted and loved on by the congregation. I mean, this is what Scripture teaches us. And in some cases, such a person can be restored to the office of pastor if enough time has gone by where we can observe the fruit of repentance and, and a pattern of godly living has been reestablished so that credibility has been restored among the congregation. And that takes us to the third bow of the tree pertaining to the church's treatment of elders. The first one was reward them generously, The second one is uh, discipline them properly. And now the the third bower, major branch is appoint them carefully. (laughs) And you can see why Paul says that. Verses 22 to 25. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Why does Paul bring up all this at this point in the passage? I think it's obvious that one way to avoid the public rebuke of an elder is to be careful who you appoint as an elder in the first place. That's what he's saying. Don't appoint someone too hastily. Otherwise, you might be an unwitting accomplice to their sin. So keep yourself pure, Paul tells Timothy, in this context of appointing elders. By the way, notice the, the parenthetical statement in verse 23. No longer drink only wine or water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach for your frequent ailments. Think about what Timothy was going through at Ephesus. You know, false teaching, um, older men that carried a lot of political clout, if you will, in the church. Very intimidating situation. It could have been some of Timothy might have even had kind of a weaker constitution. And, and, and I will confess after many years of ministry that some ministry issues can give you indigestion. <laughs> some can give you an upset stomach. And sometimes you can go uh, through periods where, where you are constantly unsettled because of the pressures without, and and it seems that Timothy was had had uh, refused to drink any alcohol, any wine at all. And we have to remember that the water in those days were, were, was not purified like it is in our days. And, and Timothy, perhaps out of uh, wanting to be extra careful, or maybe he had seen abuse of alcohol in his church and and wanted to just be above all that and, and kind of go even beyond what Scripture requires, because Scripture commands against drunkenness, but it does not command abstinence. It's perfectly fine if you want to abstain, but Scripture doesn't command it. And Paul is saying, Timothy, look... Um, when I talk about keeping yourself pure, that reminds me, take a little wine for your stomach. To me, I know you're a godly man. You're trying to be a godly example to the flock, but, but it's okay, Timothy. Wine has some good medicinal purposes. Allow, take in a little bit in order to calm your stomach. So Paul just sort of inserts that there. And then he goes on to list four kinds of men. Did you catch that? And the final verses there, I have uh, categorized them as, and this can be a bit confusing, but stick with me, the obviously unqualified, the not so obviously unqualified, the obviously qualified, and the not so obviously qualified, as we consider the appointment of elders. So if you're not already confused when you go to fill out your sheets, uh, just stick with me here. First of all, Paul talks about the obviously qualified. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment. These are the obviously unqualified. They, they are so obviously unqualified as elders that they can be pretty much ruled out immediately. Their reputation precedes them. So I don't think this is talking about uh, you know the judgment seat of Christ. I think it's talking about the judgment of the congregation. Uh, certain men come to mind, you just know they're not a level of spiritual maturity. You would, you would never consider them as elder at this point in their spiritual journey. So uh, you just immediately dismiss them out of hand because their reputation precedes them. They're obviously unqualified. And then there are some that are not so obviously unqualified. Um, some men's sins are not seen right away. There's a hidden pattern of sin in their life, but on the outside they look qualified. And those sins have to be dealt with later because, in many times, they're appointed to that. And and now you're forced to deal with it in the manner that was described in the previous verses. They're not so obviously unqualified. And then the third group is obviously qualified their good deeds are obvious, their godly character shines for all to see. Uh, they're clearly qualified and everybody knows it. Maybe because uh, they have a good speaking gift and so they have a little bit more of a public platform and, or maybe they lead a particular ministry that, that, uh, that kind of, um, uh, covers across all various categories of the church. So they simply have more visibility and they have a godly character. They do a lot of good things. Uh, they're capable to, to to teach God's word and to refute false doctrine. And, and they are obviously qualified and pretty much everybody knows it. That's the third category. And then that fourth category is the not so obviously qualified. There are qualified men in the congregation But they're a little less obvious to identify as elders. It could be because uh, they're not really great at public speaking. But various church members would know that they've been able to minister God's word to them in one-on-one counseling. Or maybe they've dealt with a small group of people or led a small group and they have wonderfully opened up the word of God and they've encouraged the flock of God. So they don't have this huge public speaking platform, but as they minister to individual and pockets of people throughout the church, if you do a little investigating if and if you start checking around with folks, you're like, hey, this person can teach God's word, and he refutes false doctrine, and he knows how to correct and to encourage, and, and things like that, and, and he's a man of godly character, and he's put in his time, and, and, and he, he really shepherds the flock of God. He has the heart of a shepherd. They're good at mentoring other people. They serve behind the scenes, but they're still qualified. As we consider these four categories, the obviously unqualified, the not so obviously unqualified, the obviously qualified, and the not so obviously qualified, the practical question that pertains to all of us is this, and and this is what one commentator wrote, and and I highlighted it because I really appreciated the practical implications. Because it would be easy for you to say, well, I'm not an elder, or I don't plan to be an elder, I don't think I'm called to that, I don't think I'm gifted for that, whatever, But the obvious practical question that pertains to all of us is this. What kind of person are you? What will people find out about you as time goes on? Will your sins catch up with you? Or will people discover that you are actually much godlier than they ever would have expected? Those are good questions that pertain to every Christian And remember the key takeaway from today's text. Be good to your elders while remaining godly yourself. And as we wrap up our study of 1 Timothy 5, one thing is clear. (laughs) We need the Lord to love one another like family. Don't we? We need the Lord to love one another like family. And thank God that Jesus Christ is both our our example and our enabler. He is our pattern and he is also our power.